This morning's scripture is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your presence here with us. Thank you that you call us into your presence. And Lord, most of all, thank you that it is in Jesus Christ that we are able to come without fear and without trepidation because, Lord, we know in and of ourselves we've not earned any right to stand before you. We are not good enough. Lord, we are only here because we're yours. And we thank you that this morning we stand in Jesus Christ, pure and holy, redeemed and set apart, and Lord, that you tell us to come before you with confidence. So Lord, we come, and we ask that we would experience you together this morning. Father, we lift up other churches in our area, and this morning we pray for hope nearby. We lift up Northside Baptist. Southlake Presbyterian, Grace Covenant, as just some of the churches surrounding us, Lord, we ask your blessing upon their services this hour or later in the day. We thank you for their presence here, and we ask that you would truly bless their ministries. May those congregations experience you together this morning. May you bless their work in the area, and may your kingdom go forth, Lord. Father, we ask now that as we come seeking you, you give us ears to hear. Lord Jesus, open up your word to us, speak to us, change us, and make us more like yourself. Glorify yourself. Lord, let us have the very ready awareness that we stand on holy ground because you are here with your people. We praise you and we thank you and we give this time to you in your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Well, we continue in this series going through the book of Ephesians. Last week, you heard Peter Scheidt preach on the passage before, and he actually included in that passage were verses 17 and 18. So this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 19 and 22, the very end of Ephesians chapter 2. Now, I've heard it said numerous times, something along these lines, I like Jesus, I just don't like His church. Now, many who are outside the church of Jesus, they will say this very readily. Jesus, he's good. His church, not so much. And I'd be willing to bet that even some of you who are here in one of his churches today, you like that sentiment a little too much yourself and can relate to it, where it's like, I like Jesus. Yeah, you guys, not so much. And it could be for any number of reasons, because churches are filled with sinners, fallen people. But I'm hoping that at the end of this time together, what you'll see is that maybe our own view of and attitude towards the church gets lifted up a little bit. 
Because what we have in our passage today is Paul describing what the church of Jesus Christ is and also how better to live out our identity as members of such. Now, if you haven't been here, let me give you a brief summary because what Paul's doing, this is the danger of taking things in small pieces like we do and going through a book week over week. This is one long letter meant to kind of be read at one time. And so it's easy to get lost in where you are. But just to summarize what Paul has said, because it's all important leading into the few verses we're going to look at today, is you can summarize the first part of chapter 1 and chapter 2 basically this way, is that God has a plan to unite and bring everything under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's the problem, is that humanity is fractured and even malevolent towards God and towards each other. So what God has done in Jesus is He's made a whole new race of people, Jews and Gentiles brought together, forming a new humanity, as Paul describes it. Not just Gentiles brought into the Jews, not, you know, a replacement. It's a whole new humanity that God's created, and that in Jesus, God ends all hostility and breaks down all barriers that normally separate people. And what you saw Peter emphasize last week in the passage that immediately precedes ours today is that the blood of Jesus reconciles us both to God and to each other. So the work of Jesus Christ has a vertical and horizontal dimension to it. So this morning, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, just keep them open to the end of Ephesians chapter 2, because that way you can see as we go through this. And it's very simple. It's a short passage, but there's a lot packed in it. Basically, Paul does three things. He says, here's what you aren't any longer. He defines you as not being something. Then he goes into saying, now here's what you are. Here's your identity. And then he goes on and basically from there gives us, I think, an important application in understanding how we live this out. So let's start with where he does, which is what you are no longer. The verse began, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Now, both of these words, foreigners and strangers, are used for travelers or immigrants. There's just a slight nuance to them, and that nuance depends on how long a person stays in a different country, in a different culture. And here's the easiest way to think about it. Strangers refer to people who belong to one country, and they're simply passing through another country on vacation. So it'd be like you or me getting, we're members, citizens of the United States, and we get a visa and we go to India for a week or two. That's what this word foreigner, I mean stranger, refers to, is somebody that's very temporarily in a different culture, in a different country. Now, foreigners, and sometimes English translations will use the word aliens, it refers to a person living in a different country country, a different culture other than their own, but with no rights of citizenship in that country. And you can think of it this way. It'd be like somebody coming to the United States with a work visa. They're living here, but they're not afforded all the rights and privileges and benefits of being a citizen of this country. A more apt illustration possibly, and this was true in Paul's time, even as it is today, you can view this foreigner as a refugee somebody who has been displaced from their country, displaced from their culture, often because of war, often because of life circumstances, and they're forced to go elsewhere and now are living 
in a totally strange land permanently. It's a very difficult thing. So this is what he's getting at. And what Paul's saying is this. At one time, you and I were complete strangers to God. We were outsiders. We were spiritual exiles cut off from God. We're meant to be with Him, but we weren't. We were outsiders. We were foreigners. We were strangers. But no longer in Jesus Christ. In Him, you now belong. In Him, you've come home. Now, if you've ever spent a large amount of time in a foreign country, the greater that culture is different from our own, the harder it is to, over a long period of time, stay there. That's why going to Europe and even parts of Eastern Europe aren't that hard. But you go to some other cultures, and very quickly you feel, I'm a fish out of water. I, I love all the times that I've been to China and that I've been to India. And here's some from one of my last trips to China. You can't see it very well on the screens here, but there's somebody that looks very different from everyone else in these pictures, a beautiful young woman carrying a little baby in the right-hand side who happens to be my wife. We stood out like crazy walking the streets of China. She did in particular because she's a tall American white woman. And people would just come up to her and want to get a picture with her. We stood out so much. It's not easy. I love being in China, but after a couple of weeks, it's hard. And the reason it's hard is because there are certain barriers and certain things that make it difficult. The language. I couldn't read any of the signs of the stores. The food can be very difficult. The customs of the people can be very difficult. And so after spending a wonderful two weeks in China... When I hit the Chicago airport, and I'm not ashamed to say this, I ran straight to McDonald's. Because in the Chicago airport, side by side are McDonald's and Starbucks, and I would run and get a cheeseburger and a mocha and eat them together. And yeah, I know that's very lowbrow, but it was a taste of home. It was something more familiar It's hard being a foreigner. It's one of the reasons why we encourage you as we work with international students who come here. It's such an important opportunity for us to make them feel welcomed and included in different ways. We can't make them feel fully home because it's hard being outside of home. But the point is, just like it was like coming home into the Chicago airport and getting that cheese bee and the mocha, Paul's saying, now in Jesus, you've come home. This is where you were always meant to be, but you couldn't get here. You were exiles. You were foreigners. You were strangers. But now in Jesus, no longer. You're home. And he sets that up because now he's going to go into describing what we are in Jesus Christ. And he does it with three specific analogies. So you're no longer this, but now you are these three things. And he begins by saying, first, you're fellow citizens of God's kingdom. God now rules over you as your king. That's in verse 19. Also in verse 19, right on its heels, he says, not only that, you're members of God's household. Is that you are a chosen people specially loved by God, him as your adopted father, you as his family. And then thirdly, you are literally a holy temple. 
the very dwelling of God himself. Now, these analogies are quite amazing. And what you see as Paul goes through them in order, there's actually a growing intensity as he walks through them. And the intensity all surrounds relationship. There's an intensity of relationship with God and an intensity of relationship with people. And here's what I mean. Think of it this way. An intensity of relationship with God. Okay, fellow citizens of God's kingdom. We have a king. We live generally in the same country. Kings live in the same country as their citizens. But you can be pretty far apart from your king. You may never actually see your king. But you go up to the next level. A father lives under the same roof with his children. There's a closer proximity, a closer relationship to a father and child than there is to king and citizens. And yet the third one gets to be the most intense of all, which is there is no separation between you and God himself. Because as his holy temple, God dwells within you. That means you're never separated from him. That means you are meant to have a closeness of communion and union with him. So there's an intensity of relationship with God, but there's also an intensity of relationship with other people horizontally. You know, citizens, we're not going to see many people who live out in Michigan often or on the West Coast. You know, we're in the same country, but there's a great disparity geographically. And yet, once again, you typically see your household members pretty regularly, even if you travel on business there's a good shot you're going to see them at some point during the week. And yet, living stones in a temple that make up one temple, they're literally placed side by side with almost no separation between them. So Paul says there's this intensity of relationship with God and with each other. And what I'll do this morning is hopefully we'll see what's he getting at with this growing intensity. Let's go through these briefly. The first is this. You are fellow citizens of God's kingdom. Now, this is a great contrast to being foreigners and strangers. In Jesus Christ, God has invited you to be a full citizen in His kingdom with all the benefits thereof, meaning you have His protection, you have His provision, you have all kinds of things because He is your king. Now, if you knew the importance of being a Roman citizen, that was a thing of great pride, Paul called on his Roman citizenship a couple of times, and it helped him out immensely. He couldn't be whipped or beaten without a trial taking place, or he wasn't supposed to be because that was an unlawful thing for a Roman citizen to have happen to him. There were a lot of benefits. You didn't get your Roman citizenship easily. He's saying, you are citizens of God's kingdom. You have benefits associated with that. But not only that, Notice what he says, you were fellow citizens, literally, with God's people, is what it says. Now, if you grew up in the United States, there's a level of pride that is appropriate, meaning that you live and are in the same country as people like Abraham Lincoln, Louisa May Alcott, bottom right, Susan B. Anthony, top left. The Wright brothers, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Babe Ruth, Johnny Cash. Yes, it's a personal preference thing, I know, but (laughs) these are all great Americans. You could have hundreds more in your own list. 
The point is that by being a citizen of the United States of America, there's a level of connection. There's a level of identity with great thinkers and musicians and artists and political leaders and social leaders in different ways. That's part of our identity is what it means to be an American. And that's important. And what Paul is saying here, though, is there's a greater identity for you. There's an even greater identity because you were fellow citizens of God's kingdom. That means you are related to Pascal and Moses and Mary and C.S. Lewis and Gladys Aylward and Martin Luther and Fanny Crosby and even Doug. (laughs) Because, and you can list hundreds more, you are connected to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You are connected to Ruth, and Esther. You're connected to King David and Solomon. You're connected to the prophets. You're connected to the apostles, to Matthew and John and Paul himself, to Peter. This is your heritage. This is your group of identity in Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is saying, this is your heritage We need to keep this front and center because part of your identity is you belong to all these people. This is part of your story. You are connected to all the saints of God throughout all ages in Jesus Christ. You are fellow citizens with them. That's the first thing Paul says. Then he goes on and he says, but not only that, you are also members of God's household, meaning you have a new family with God Himself as your Father. Now, this is an amazing thing. My wife and I, we've participated in adoption. Adoption is sometimes referred to as bringing a child into a forever family. What has happened in Jesus Christ? You are adopted sons and daughters. You are now made part of God's forever family in Jesus Christ. You know what? In His amazing sense of humor, He's invited you in. Yeah. In His amazing sense of humor, He invited me in. As I said first hour, in His amazing sense of humor, He invited a guy like a Rob Banzik in. You know, we don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. And yet, God in His glory invites us in and says, I love you. I adopt you You are precious to me. You are cherished to me. I will be your father forever. I commit myself to you forever. It's a beautiful thing. You know, families, they shape a person even more than the culture does. Now, think about this. This is a whole other topic we go into. But culture shapes a person. Identity, values, priorities. Your immediate family shapes that even more than your culture because the family you're raised in is a greater part of your identity. It's a greater part of your value system. Your priorities will even more greatly flow out of your family in different ways than the culture itself. I encourage you, look around the room for a minute. It's okay to turn your heads. (laughs) The people you see in this room around you These are your brothers and sisters. This is your family. You realize the the 
the word used more than any other word in the Bible to describe Christians is brethren, brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters brought into one family with God as our Father, Jesus as the only begotten Son, and everyone else adopted heirs. And what God is doing by bringing us into family is He's seeking to give us an identity. You're not outcast. I'm your Father. Your values aren't the values of the world. Your values are my values. Your priorities are my priorities. He's seeking to shape us. And what He does is He calls us into this family and looking at each other, He calls us to love each other, to accept each other in the exact same way He's loved and accepted us. You know, it's crazy. It's crazy when I think about that I know my sin better than anyone, that He would adopt me and make me His cherished child. He's done it for you. And what, he, what that means is, He says, now Rick, go and treat everyone else who believes in Jesus Christ the same way I've treated you. Love them unconditionally. Share your life with them. Accept them. The church is the adopted family of God. But now, the greatest image is that we are the very dwelling of God Himself, this holy temple. Verses 21 and 22 read this way, if you have your Bibles open. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And what blows me away, this word here, these two words, holy temple. If you were here last week, you heard Peter talk about the temple complex and all the walls and the various things. And as you worked your way into the temple, you know, certain people could not get in at all. And then Gentiles could get into one courtyard, and then you had to be a Jew to get into the next one. And then it became more and more narrow who could get in. And in the center was what was called the most holy place. And there was only one person in all of Israel who could get in there, and he did so only once a year. That was the high priest. And that place was called the most holy place. That's the language that Paul's using here. It's not just temple complex. You are now the most holy place. You are the place where God dwells, where God's being exists. It's an amazing thing. In God, in Jesus Christ, there's complete union and oneness. That's how we're meant to experience Him. Now think about this for a moment. You you do this when you choose a house or choose an apartment because we're all the same. When you're out looking for a place to live, you ask yourself certain questions. Is this somewhere that fits me? Is it attractive to me? Can I see myself living here? I don't like the counters of the bathroom. I don't like whatever. You know, and you make all these judgments based on, does this place look like it fits me and fits my character? What Paul is saying here is that the God of the universe, who could choose his dwelling anywhere, is saying, I choose you. I choose you to be the place that I reside. I choose you to fit me. I look at you and I see you as beautiful. I look at you and I want to be with you. It's an amazing thing that Paul's saying. There's such dignity in this. This is your identity. 
the dwelling place of God Almighty. You know, it's true that because Paul says elsewhere that every single believer is the dwelling of God. He says, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the emphasis here in Ephesians. What he emphasizes here is not your individual self, but he's emphasizing you joined with other Christians making up this temple. There's an important application of this. Because talking about the corporate nature of it, Paul's getting at community is critical to experiencing God. You see, we are called to deep involvement with Christian community because God has chosen to inhabit us together, not just individually. It's when Christians are together that God is most experienced. And you know this. Yeah, we can have wonderful experiences alone with the Lord, but God delights to more and more regularly manifest His glory and His presence when the body is together, when Christians are in community with one another. That's where He says, you can truly experience my glory and see me in ways that you'll never see me by yourself. Providentially, today happens to be Life Group Rush Week. It's one of the reasons we encourage you, be part of a small group. Because in that small group, you can intentionally seek to be part of a community to better experience God together. And I know, sometimes small groups, they, I said this first hour, they look like the island of misfit toys, where, you know, you get a group of people together, and you're like, how in the, who chose this group? What was Doug thinking when he put these people together? Because there seems to be, I mean, there's no, there's no continuity in age. There seems to be no continuity in sports preferences or, you know, different things they're interested in. I mean, it's just like, how do these people mesh? In Jesus Christ, you can come together and be one. And even what would look like by all outward appearances to be, these people could never go together in Jesus Christ can experience God together. Because what the beauty is, is that each individual, God chooses to work in in different ways so that the group sees him all the better. There are things like when I work with the staff here during a given week, I see attributes and aspects of the Lord that I'll never see on my own. Because in the men and women I rub shoulders with and do life with on a regular basis, God reveals himself to me in ways. Community is critical. Now, I know you're thinking, but it's hard. I often don't feel close to other people. I often feel like I'm in this misfit community and it's weird and awkward. And here's the solution. Why I think that's a hard thing and a reality is because you'll better experience the Lord in community the more you let Jesus be your cornerstone. Now, I need to explain this one a little bit. But the reason we often don't experience Jesus in community together better is because we're living basically as isolationists. We're living in a way where Jesus may be an add-on to our life rather than the cornerstone of our life. Verse 20 says it this way, "...you are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone." 
This isn't as true much as much today with modern means of architecture, but at this time when Paul was writing, a cornerstone of a building was the most crucial block of the entire structure. The cornerstone literally had to be perfect, meaning it had to have perfectly 90-degree angles, it had to be perfectly plumb straight up and down, because everything else The whole rest of the structure, the straightness of the walls, making sure the walls go out at the right angles and then conjoin together, it was all contingent on the cornerstone. And that cornerstone had to be perfect. And don't think of a cornerstone as kind of like one of these monitors up here as a little brick like this. The cornerstone of the temple of Jerusalem under Herod, it weighed almost 600 tons. It was more than 40 feet long, more than... 12 feet high and 15 feet wide. That's a cornerstone. That's ginormous. A cornerstone was the very first thing put into place, and the way they referred to it was this. This is the testing stone. You see, every other stone that then was put in the entire building was tested against that cornerstone. Everything was measured by it. Everything was judged by it. Now look at verse 22 again in light of that. In Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This speaks of a process. Why don't we experience it as much? Because we're not allowing Jesus to be the cornerstone that moment by moment shapes our lives. And when they built the temple, it was a highly complex process where they took those stones and they would polish them and sand them and put them together and then redo them until they were perfect. And Paul's speaking of what's happening by your life in Jesus Christ is a constant honing, shaping, polishing that's going on in Jesus Christ so that stones that originally butted up strangely to each other, over time, with Jesus being your testing stone, you fit together the way you're supposed to perfectly. You're being molded and shaped more and more into His image. Now, you, you may be saying, well, what does it mean? I, okay, that's, I get the image, but what does it mean to have Him as my cornerstone? Here's the easiest way I can explain it. He is your life. You see, having Jesus as the cornerstone of your life means that your entire life is built on Him. What does this look like? It, during the week, you think about Him nonstop. You know, if Jesus is only an occasional thought to you, okay, I think about him a lot on Sunday morning, and then I sometimes think about him on Wednesday, and sometimes think about him on Saturday because I know church is coming the next day. Okay, well, it's better than nothing, but that's honestly not living with Jesus as your cornerstone. Because when Jesus is the foundation of your entire life, it means you can't do life without him. It means He's always on your mind. It means He's always influencing your decisions. It means He's always the means against which your values and your priorities are tested. That's what it means for Him to be your cornerstone. He is your life. The person who showed this to me more than anyone was my grandfather, my greatest mentor, because every time I was around Him, Jesus was on His mind. Jesus was on His lips. It was his mission in life to let everyone else around him see that Jesus is the most beautiful, wonderful person you can know. And he lived with Jesus as his cornerstone. 
One of my favorite people here at Stonebridge is that exact same way. And he inspires me week after week because he'll tell you, I have nothing better to talk about than Jesus. Yeah, he has interests. He loves golf. He loves different things. He works. He's not a minister. He works at a store called Haverty's. He sells furniture and manages people for a living. But you know, his greatest thing in life is Jesus. And he can't stop talking about him. That's how all of us should be. When Jesus is your cornerstone, He is your life. Living this way will allow us to better experience Him together. You know, day by day, He's constantly shaping us. Let me give you an example, because the church is meant to look completely different than the world. Completely different. You see, if we live this way, then our relationships here in this community and with every other Christian around the world will look radically different. And to explain this, I want to use an older illustration. It was August of 1968, and the country is reeling from the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He had been killed four months earlier, and now four months in, There's race riots, there's white flight, there's burning of buildings, there's so much agitation, and and people are literally wondering how, I mean, there's no way, this is an unworkable situation. The culture literally looked like it was crumbling apart as this is never going to be reconciled. And with all the radicals and reactionaries, it wouldn't be. What was interesting was one year before that, there was a little children's show that got started in Pittsburgh. It's called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I love Mr. Rogers. I'll tell you why more in a moment. I grew up with Mr. Rogers. Well, Fred Rogers, it was the year anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. And when he started this show, he invited a man by the name of Francois Clemens, who, if you ever saw the show, he was known as Officer Clemens on the show. And what was so outstanding was never before had there been a black individual who was a recurring person on a children's television show. Francois Clemens was the very first one. And what was so amazing about this was in the middle of all the race riots and the, what was going on in the country at the time is Fred Rogers invited Officer Clemens on as a person of integrity, kindness, who took care of the neighborhood, and who was seen as an equal to Fred Rogers himself living in the same area. Well, at the year anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's death, Fred Rogers is sitting in this little tub, well, sitting on a chair with his feet in a tub, cooling his feet off as it's hot outside, And on camera, he invites Officer Clemens to sit down with him and put his feet in the water with him. And this was was not scripted. Francois Clemens was blown away by this because, one, he wasn't expecting it. And this is what he said. There we were, brown feet and pasty white feet, side by side in the water. And this icon, Fred Rogers, was not only showing my brown skin in the tub with his white skin as two friends, but as I got out of the tub, he helped me dry my feet on camera too. And he says he'll never forget that day as Fred Rogers ended the program. He said the same thing every day. He'd hang up his sweater, 
you know, change his clothes. And he'd say, you make every day a special day just by being you, and I like you just the way you are. And when he said that, that day he was looking right at Francois Clemens. And so they cut, and the show ends, and Francois Clemens runs up to Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers, and says, Fred, were you talking to me? And Fred's answer was, yes. I've actually been talking to you for a while, but you heard me the first time today. And Francois Clemens said, this was a transformational moment. It was one of the most meaningful experiences I had ever had in life because it was him telling me in front of the world that was watching, you're okay. I accept you just the way you are. Now, here's why I share that. 25 years later, when Officer Clemens retired from the show, they reprised that same role. He had told Fred how important it was to him and all it meant to him. So when he retired on his retirement day, they did the same thing. And the reason I share that, it's like, okay, that's a nice story, but what you may not know is this. Fred Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian minister. And he was coming and living out a personal conviction regarding what the Christian faith says about identity. Namely, you are who God sees you to be, which is a forgiven sinner, adopted into his family, someone in whom he is well pleased, and he says, go live likewise. And what Fred Rogers did was he lived out every day, even on public TV, what Paul tells us to live in this passage. It was transformational to Francois Clemens. You see, the church is meant to model a completely different way of relating to each other. So let me ask you this. This morning, who are you keeping at arm's length distance? Against whom are you harboring bitterness this morning? Who do you need to forgive Or from whom do you need to ask forgiveness? Let me ask you this way. Do you share your life with the community? Do you give away your time and your resources to the community in the same way that Christ gave His away to you? That's what Paul's calling us to in this passage. That's why he shows the escalating intensity of relationship. This is who you are in Jesus Christ. And you know what? This isn't just, now go and do it. Just try really hard. What gives you the strength to do this is the gospel itself. Because we could spend a lot of time, let me just hit this shortly, and you can look it up on your own. You realize for you to be made a citizen of God's kingdom, what did Christ have to do? On the cross, he became a foreigner. He was part of God's kingdom from the start of all time, and he becomes the exile. He becomes the refugee as he is cast out. The only begotten Son of the Father who had known nothing but perfect union and intimacy with the Father and who showed nothing but love back and forth so that you and I could be adopted, what did He get? He got cast out. In that moment, the forever family became shattered so that we could be brought in as sons and daughters. And Jesus on the cross literally had His Father's presence withdrawn from Him so that we could be made into a temple. You see what Christ has done for you? 
This is why it blows me away. And this is why the gospel is the greatest shaping factor in life. If we'll get that and take it in, it will change all of our relationships, particularly those in the church. And then just maybe the world will see, wow, they have something I want because there's something different. May that be true of Stonebridge and the church of Jesus around the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. You have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thank you for making us citizens of your kingdom, members of your family, and the very temple in which you choose to dwell, O Father. Lord, help us live out this grand calling. Help us love as you love and accept as you accept so that there are no barriers between us, so that your kingdom may be seen more and more and experienced every single day. Lord, do this for your glory, we pray. Amen.